should run a company? And who should a company be run for? These are big questions. They're questions that are especially relevant to us, of course, as academics and practitioners. But they're also fundamentally important to everybody. We could see populism, Brexit and Extinction Rebellion as examples of people getting fed up with companies focusing on the wrong things. Short-term shareholder returns don't do much for the bigger long-term picture. Business needs to regain trust from society. The good news is that for the most part, people agree on the destination. But right now, however, there's quite a range of views on how to get there. I'm Alex Edmonds, and I'm a professor of finance here at London Business School. I'm also academic director of the Centre for Corporate Governance. You're about to hear insights from a range of academics and practitioners from one of our recent events, Who Should Run a Company? To answer that question, we focused on the perspectives of shareholders, employees and beyond. The panel chair of the first session was Tom Gosling, who's a partner with PwC and an executive fellow here at London Business School. Diane Dennis, Katz Alumni Professor of Finance at the University of Pittsburgh, opened the day by looking at shareholder primacy. Professor Dennis accepted that corporations are unpopular and that the conflicts between society and corporations need to be dealt with. However, for her, the principle of shareholder wealth maximisation is not one of these conflicts. Professor Diane Dennis. So why do people hate corporations? There's a notion that they've had, that there's an undue accumulation of power on the part of corporations, that the legal entity of the corporation allows managers to hide behind it and that there's a lack of accountability. More particularly, people blame corporations for a lot of societal ills, things like income inequality and environmental decay. Um, corporations operate in an uncertain and changing world, and so inevitably there are going to be negative outcomes, things like layoffs and plant closings and so forth. And there's a notion that corruption and fraud are um, endemic to the corporate view. I think shareholder governance is important to corporate success, and corporations are important to society, all right? They produce products and services that people want at prices that they're willing to pay. They contribute to economic growth. They employ lots of people. So I don't think that the good of the corporation and the good of the society are, are in conflict all that often. The idea is we need to make the shareholder governance model more effective. So we need market participants, including managers and boards of directors, to understand that appropriate treatment of stakeholders actually is in shareholders' economic interests. We need transparency and information dissemination. We need enforcement of the laws across the board. I think this is a big one. And finally, we need an ongoing dialogue that allows us to identify where the goals of the corporation and the goals of society actually are in conflict and how best to deal with those conflicts. Tom Gosling, our panel chair. We're going to run that panel discussion around four main themes, really. One is about whether the assumptions that underlie the shareholder value model actually do you know, really hold. Dan, Dan laid out the case, but there are some assumptions that I think we could challenge there. The second is whether boards and shareholders are actually set up and equipped to do the job that they are meant to do in order to make that model 
work effectively for society. <laughs> uh, the third discussion we'll have is what about alternatives to shareholder value maximisation models? What are the experiences of organisations that have sought to prioritise stakeholders differently? And then finally, we'll discuss sort of attempts to perhaps take the edge off shareholder value maximisation, if you like, through things such as takeover restraints, dual classes of shares, you know, staggered boards and so on and so forth. Mark Garrett, CFO of Harvey Nash Group, didn't entirely agree. He put forward an opposing view. What I've always looked for in my career is a company that had purpose other than profit maximisation. I love doing what I do and maximising how much of the revenue gets turned into profit, of course, is one of the things that my job's all about. But what I also want to ensure is that what the company does makes me proud and that everyone who is associated with that company gets the best reward. A number of comments from Diane's initial uh, presentation jarred with me, to be honest. The concept that just because shareholders get the residual, therefore they should get the maximised outcome, whereas everyone else should only be paid just more than they could get somewhere else, doesn't sound fair to me. Clearly you can have reward structures that share super profits with other stakeholders rather than putting those costs embedded in the structures. So it doesn't mean that you become anti-competitive, it's just who shares in the, in the excess profits or excess wealth creation. And of course, that's what bonus schemes, LTIPs, executive incentives in some way are supposed to be doing anyway. I think also the way I've seen shareholders act, both in private equity environments, which I've been in now twice, because I've just been taken private at Harvey Nash by a value fund, as they call themselves, but previously worked in private equity. Yes, the ultimate value is important, but there is a bit of, firstly, not maximising value because they want to persuade the next buyers that there's value on the table. So, therefore, clearly the current value is not the full value of the company. But also, to an extent, pass the bomb. Because the residual, the liquidation model, I've never been the CFO of a company that goes into liquidation, is never the end game of a company. So arguing that all that shareholders get is what's left at the end doesn't really seem to be what drives their behaviour. They can get out whenever they want to get out, as Diane has mentioned, and therefore their flexibility, <laughs> I think, means that they should be in some ways restricted on how much they make from the whole process. Connor Kehoe, senior partner emeritus at McKinsey, was somewhere in the middle. He does believe strongly that an organisation should serve a purpose. However, he's with Diane on the point that maximising profit can happen at the same time. I have to agree, it's really hard to run an organisation that doesn't have a purpose that's serving society. Just managerially it's very difficult. But I don't see that as incompatible with a division of the spoils that later means you, know, you want to maximise the surplus the company generates, which most of which they'll probably spend on capital expenditure research from retained earnings. So this surplus is actually in many ways being its expenditures or its disposal is being dictated by the company, so you're doing the best for the company and its shareholders. But I do agree that as a purpose to serve society, shareholder value frankly doesn't have that much appeal for employees. So a company needs to be in existence to do something, and a happy consequence of it doing well is that it generates profits, some of which it reinvests, some of which it hands on to shareholders. So as you can gather from this, I think this mechanism of shareholder board, in principle, is not a bad one. The second session drilled down much deeper into how shareholders influence the companies they own. Cliff Holderness, Professor of Finance at Boston College 
and a co-organiser of the conference, has studied shareholder decision rights in depth. In the Anglo-American legal system, shareholders rule, but every country has different rules on how much shareholders can veto managers. There are interesting overall patterns worldwide. They suggest to us that shareholder decision-making does have positive effects on value. Professor Cliff Holderness. What I found was amazingly robust and consistent patterns around the world. It's that when shareholders vote to approve an equity issuance, the stock return tends to be positive. It's about a 2% increase in value. When managers do it unilaterally, it's about four percentage points lower, and it's negative. When shareholder approval is required, rights offerings are very common, and public offerings are very unheard of. But when managers can issue equity unilaterally, they tend to do public offerings over rights offerings. And also, managers try to avoid shareholder votes by structuring equity offerings. So bottom line, when I look at all of this is, if I were a large shareholder, I would look very carefully at putting something into the corporate charter or bylaws saying that shareholders had to approve major equity issuances. When I gave this paper, people would say, well, do you think there should be regulation? You know, should we change the law requiring shareholders to approve equity issuances? And I said, no. I'm an anti-regulation guy in almost all respects. And the reason is I don't think one size fits all. I think for some firms you want to have uh, quite a few veto rights. Other firms, maybe you go with a pure Republican. The other thing is that I think we want to have experiments. We want to see what works and what doesn't work. And lots of times, this is just by chance that you find something. Karine Smith Ayanacho, Chief Corporate Governance Officer of Norgas Bank Investment Management, which generously co sponsored the conference, set out a practitioner perspective. She explained how shareholders look to influence boards. Late last year, we came up with three position papers that we think are important to get the right boards. If you sort of look uh, on the sort of perspective of all the companies we have invested in, and one was, which we think is pretty clear, is that we want board members to actually know the business of the company we have invested in. So uh, we have a position that says we want board members with industry inside industry experience. So when we vote for board members, we, when we engage with boards, we look at that. We look at whether the board members actually have some industry experience, because then we think that uh, it's probably more likely that they, you know, that they take good decisions, that they can set the right strategy, that they can work for better value creation. So that's one position we have. Another position we have is about time commitment. It was mentioned here, the time the board members spend on the boards. We want to make sure at least the board members have sufficient time to spend on the boards we have voted them in on. So we say we have some sort of quite clear rules. We say we don't want board members to have more than five board membership of listed companies. We, in general, don't want a person to have more than one chair position. And we don't like a CEO to have more than one other board membership. So we think with those sort of rules, we, we sort of try to prevent what we often refer to as overboarding. We want to make sure they spend the sufficient time on board matters. 
And you talked about the two-year rule, Cliff. We have a two-year rule when it comes to attendance, actually. We want uh, the companies to disclose whether the board members actually attended <coughs> board meetings. And if they're two years in a row, have less than 75% board attendance, we tend to vote against them. The third board position paper is about independence. We think if the board is going to watch and look after the decision of the management well, they need to be independent. So we say the chair should be independent of the management, and we, so the position of CEO and chair should be split. Voting on that, that causes a lot of against votes because as you probably know, in many countries, it's quite common that the CEO and chair is the same person, quite often in the States. We have quite a bit of that in France, but we think it should be split because that's the way you can do proper oversight if you're independent. So that's sort of uh, some, some clear positions we have when it comes to the board and we think these let's say rules can contribute to making a more effective board. We very much also believe in what, let's call it this more soft power of engagement uh, with the board. That's not about uh, voting, but it's about dialogue and engagement. And uh, we spend a lot of time and resources of having dialogues uh, with the boards in which we have invested. And let me say last year, we had 3,200 company meetings where we talk about issues we care about as a long-term owner. And I think if you sort of couple the dialogue with the voting, I think from an investor perspective, that's when you get the, the best, let's say, engagement with the companies. The conversation then turned to how can we create wealth sustainably? Are there drawbacks to the investment shape? Independent non-executive director Daniel Godfrey said the short-term nature of investment was at the root of the problem. So why structurally is this investment chain not fulfilling really the ultimate purpose of investment, which is to create wealth sustainably? If it was, we wouldn't need to have corporate governance officers to hold companies to account in the way that they do. Looking at a benchmark, which is essentially the shortest term thing that you can have because you can measure performance against that benchmark almost minute by minute and hour by hour, leads you to look at the company on a much shorter term basis, where three years becomes actually quite a long-term time horizon. Whereas an investment cycle in some industries will be decades, and in most industries will be a lot longer than three years. So I think the shareholder decision rights are broadly appropriate to delivering the best outcomes, but we have an investment chain which is not fit for the purpose of using those decision rights, of providing the right incentives, the right support, encouragement, exhortation, pressure, and if necessary, requiring companies to behave in a sustainable way. And I think that is why we start with this problem of uh, anger with corporations from uh, media, from politicians, and from citizens that they are creating more inequality and not considering the environment. They're not delivering necessarily a fair outcome for them. And it's really up to, I think, the central people in this are the people who we call them shareholders, but generally they're not. They're the fiduciaries, the asset managers, the people who are making voting decisions. They're the ones who hold, I think, the central role in facing back to the pension fund trustees or the individual investors and saying to them, look, the, 
the ultimate investors are all of us. And we have needs which run into decades. We don't need to be fired as a, a group of trustees, as we heard about in the first session, who get fired for having a down year. What we need to be measured on is, are we providing the returns in a sustainable way for the ultimate beneficiaries over the time horizons that they're going to be living for, which is generally, or not, the median, must be decades. The focus then turns away from shareholders to employees. Right now, in the UK and the US, there's talk about rules to mandate employee representation in the boardroom. I've been sceptical about that, but my head has been turned by some interesting research by Professor Ernst Maug, Chair of Corporate Finance at the University of Mannheim. His findings suggest that there might be a benefit and it needn't be at the expense of shareholders. So our conclusion, our employee representation is common. It does implement insurance contracts very effectively, but only for those who are represented. So the 20% at the bottom who are not presented, I think, get the short end of the stick. The empirical evidence is totally inconclusive, which means that, for me, employee representation neither helps nor hurts shareholders, and the shareholders seem to understand this, from, and that's my interpretation of the empirical evidence. And if you put this into a broader context of corporate governance, I think once you have strong representation of the workers, you also need strong representation of the shareholders. And if you then have a very kind of convoluted ownership structure and the whole uh, environment doesn't work, then you should also not be surprised that, uh, that corporate governance leads to what we saw at Volkswagen. The panel then talked about their practical experience of representing employees. Cynthia Gordon, non-executive director of Tele2, and chair of the Global Fashion Group, said for her, employee board representation wasn't really useful. She thought that there were other ways of ensuring that employees' voice was heard in the boardroom. I think morally we can all believe that getting more employee representation is the right thing. However, very practically and pragmatically, I don't think it's the most powerful tool, and I think some of your research showed that. And also, I, I don't think it's a, a very widely used tool as well. And I'll give you a very practical example. I mean, in all of the companies I've involved with, we always talk about employee engagement at the board level. And one of the most profound things that has helped us in terms of toolkits is the whistleblower line. Every company I've been on the board of, we've rolled that out. We work very strenuously to get that visible. And that has been one of the most powerful mechanisms to get controversial issues on the board agenda. And I think it's much more powerful than having one or two people in the room. To add to that, I think it's also about transparency. And quite often, I think, the boards where the CEO is less transparent about the performance of the company is also less effective in terms of getting the employees engaged and getting the voice of the company, voice of the employee in the boardroom. So I'm a very strong believer that if you're on the board of a company, you should have a very strong network within that company as well. But there's a different type of representation for employees, greater diversity on boards. According to her, the next generation need boardrooms they can relate to. What I see so profoundly is young employees, people at the bottom, want to see a board that's more representative of them, their friends, their working places. And, you know, one of the things I constantly quote is the research about the 100 top FTSE uh, chairman that 
80% of them were called Lord, Sir, David or John. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I think millennials, you know, the top talent, the, you know, the people at working level are looking for something really quite profoundly different and they're looking for a boardroom that they and a set of people within that boardroom that they can really relate to and that have some understanding mm -hmm. of where they are and you know how they pay their mortgage and what it's like to travel on public transport every day when it's completely crowded so you know that for me is profound change mm -hmm. so yes we need to do all the basic stuff in uh, you know employee engagement etc but we need boards that are much more representative of the people that are working within our company, whether it comes through employee representation or it just comes through a board that's working harder to get a more diverse population into that, you know, whether it's ethnicity or women, whatever that challenge is. Robert Welsh, Group Company Secretary of Tesco, has experienced very different approaches to employee representation. At his previous organisation, First Group, there was an employee on the board. The firm really believed in it, so it worked. But he stressed that one size doesn't fit all. He doubted that it would work for every company. What really struck me was the lack of sort of any consensus or any conclusive evidence about whether you were more successful or less successful as a business if you had an employee representative. And I suppose that sort of endorsed my view of the approach that's currently been taken in the UK around sort of employee representation, which is again very sort of non-prescriptive, which I think given the lack of evidence is probably the right way to do it. David Yermak, Albert Fingerhut Professor of Finance and Business Transformation at NYU Stern, gave the day's keynote address. He set out the case against the stakeholder capitalism model. Some of his most famous papers have highlighted corporate excess, so you might think that he would call for a radical change to the current system. However, he argued that the current mode of capitalism, which highlights the importance of profits, is indeed value creating for society as a whole. The basic point that Friedman is trying to make is that we need productive businesses to afford all of the other things that we wish to have in the society. We all want people to have safe products. We want clean air, high incomes for workers. We want diversity and equality. There's, there's a long list of things, but if we don't have profitable businesses that produce these things, we can't pursue these other goals as a society. His second point is that business is not a shadow government. It is the job of the political system to address these other issues, such as the pay of workers, the, the safety of the workplace, the safety of products, the pollution that firms emit, and so forth. What Friedman says, I think, in a very articulate way, is that when we see business attempting to do these things alongside the profit motive, it really is an attempt to end run a political process that is not getting the outcome that people wish to have. He concluded that sharing power between various stakeholders does not work. Any type of power sharing or balancing in a stakeholder model is likely to be pretty unsuccessful. We have a short history of this in the US. There's only been really a handful of firms that have experimented with, on a large scale, employee representation on the board. 
these situations have invariably ended very, very badly, usually in bankruptcies, such as United Airlines. So there's um, very little political support for this constituency model or stakeholder model in the US. But US is the only country that doesn't have worker participation in corporate governance, and also has the strongest and best performing economy. Now, is this cause and effect? It's is a lot of other things going on for sure, but you know, on the whole, there's not a lot of interest in changing this, even from the political left in the US. If we don't have profitable businesses, and if the shareholders, you know, because of their permanence in the firm and frankly their better information and better incentives, if they don't have the last say on this, you're not going to have productive businesses. You're going to have jobs that have lower wages, fewer jobs, and in the end, bigger problems with things like the environment and product safety and so forth. Um, you know, this is an idea that has cast a very long shadow over economic theory for more than 50 years and is one that I think regardless of your political sympathies, you have to give it its due and you know, realize the power and influence of this over time. Paul Coombs, the chair of the Centre for Corporate Governance at London Business School, concluded the day. Different stakeholders need to collaborate, he said, adding that the debate does not need to be divisive. Stakeholders are not about splitting a fixed pie between each other, but working together to grow the pie. We're looking for collaborative solutions here. We're looking for win-win solutions here, and we shouldn't assume that the evidence is always that it's dividing things up rather than getting more by collaborating. And I think this also translates then into um, one of the debates we had this afternoon about what, what are we trying to get boards to do. I felt during that discussion there was a sort of suppression of are we really talking about meritocracy versus representation? Do we want boards in effect to be parliaments for their little communities? Is that frankly a practical way of taking things forward? But who has the courage as a chief executive or as a board to say, look, we believe in, in meritocracy. Of course there's a place for representation in terms of all the parties that we're involved with as a business, but that's different from saying how do we assemble the best group of people to take sometimes, frankly, some very complex technical decisions. How do we get that right? So who should run a company? It's complex and it's controversial. One of our ambitions here at the Centre for Corporate Governance is to bring together opposing views and take important debates forward. We want to bring insights from academia out into the public and also make sure at the same time that leading academics are listening to practitioners on the ground. That way, we can be part of the solution to the divisions in today's society. The mission of the LBS Centre for Corporate Governance is to use rigorous research to influence the practice of business. But at the same time, it's to learn from business practices on what are the important topics in the real world that academics should conduct research on. And we aim to promote this mission in at least two ways. Number one is to hold leading events where the world's best practitioners and academics exchange views and insights on key corporate governance topics. And the second way is to make rigorous academic research accessible in simple language for a practitioner audience. And we do this through our website, which is london.edu slash corporate governance. On that website, we present top quality research 
on both sides of topical issues, such as boards, executive pay, investor stewardship, and also some practitioner articles which are influenced by research and evidence. And I hope that whatever organisation you're in, you will find that this research and these insights are useful as you better embed responsibility and governance in your organisations. Indeed, the concept of investors and stakeholders working together to grow the pie for the benefit of all is something that I've worked in extensively throughout my 12-year career as a professor. And over the past year, I've been writing up not only my own research, but also research by other leading academics on this topic into a book for a practitioner audience and also interspersing it with real-life examples of leading organisations in embedding responsibility. That book will be out early next year and it's entitled Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profits. And I trust this will be of value to many of you who are committed to instilling responsibility into your organisations and moving it from a policy into a reality. Thank you very much for listening.